Welcome. First of all, welcome. This is Unsolicited Perspectives. I'm Bruce Anthony, your host, here to lead the conversation in important events and topics that are shaping today's society. Join the conversation by following us wherever you get your audio podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channels to watch our video podcasts. Rate, review, like, comment, share. Share with your friends, share with your family, hell, even share with your enemies. On today's episode, I'm going to be interviewing Adrienne Trebernik. She's a professor of sociology, and she focuses on how pop culture presents inequality based on race, gender, and sexuality. This is going to be an interesting conversation. That's enough of the intro. Let's get to the show. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and children of all ages. I'm here with Adrienne trier Benick. She's a college professor of sociology, uh, an academic who focuses on ways pop culture presents inequality based on race, gender, and sexuality. So you know that's what we're all about. So I'm really excited to have her on the show. She's also an author. She's written The Beyonce Effect and Gender Pop Culture, a text reader. She's, uh, she's a podcaster. Check out her podcast wherever you get your audio podcasts called Most Pop. Uh, she's also appeared in several media outlets, NPR France, The Washington Post, Glamour, NBC News, etc. Adrian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. What an introduction. <laughs> well, you know, I like to make sure that I introduce everybody properly and uh, get the credentials out so people understand that we bring credible people on the show. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. No problem. No problem at all. So let's start from the beginning. Can you share a little bit of your background and what drew you to sociology? Yeah. Um, so I was born, I live in Florida now, but I was born and raised in a really, really small town in northern Michigan um, on Lake Michigan. So mm -hmm. my town has one stoplight, just to give you a perspective of how little it is. And okay. people fight over whether or not that one stoplight should be there, but that's another story. Um, so it was a very, very limited space. And both of my parents are social workers. So I think when I was born, they had an intention that I was going to see life outside of this little town, no matter what. And, you know, social work doesn't pay great, but they took what they could. And every summer we would travel um, and we would drive because my mom doesn't fly. So we would drive everywhere. I mean, we drove from Michigan to the California border. We drove to Florida. We drove. Yeah. My dad is a veteran. So we went to D.C. a lot and saw all the stuff there. And they just made it a point that anything that said historical monument, historical site, someone, you know, historical slept here, we stopped and we looked at all of it. And they mm. made sure that I had that perspective that the world is much bigger than this little town I was living in. I also really, really love to read. And I grew, I grew up in the 80s. So the Scholastic Book Fair was like a massive deal for us. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. <laughs> and so I would get it down to the penny of how much money I had to spend at this thing. Um, my parents' money, obviously, but they would give me a budget. Right. And, you know, I would buy everything I possibly could. I would read everything I possibly could. This drove my mother nuts, I think, in a good way, because she would buy me something, mm -hmm. and in a day I would have it read. So she made yeah. a deal with our librarian, our little small librarian, um, local library, where she said, listen, I know the limit is 12 books for two weeks. Can you let my kid have 14 for, 12, for two weeks? Because this is... <laughs> Financially, this is not great. So <laughs> <laughs> that's where we started was just um, parents that really wanted me to know that there's more mm -hmm. to life than just what we're looking at here in this little town. Um, I don't know why I I don't know why I specifically chose inequality as an area other than it's always just been something that I've been very aware of. Um, sociology mm -hmm. came to me because I did a a bachelor's degree in um, a program called liberal studies, which people think, think means I studied liberal stuff, which that's not true. I, it's a way to structure your own degree. So I wanted to do an interpersonal communications degree and my college didn't offer that, but this program did. So I had okay. this heavy philosophy based education. And when I got out, I thought, I, I don't know what to do. So I worked at a women's center for three years and did mm. their volunteer coordination. And then I was also um, a trauma uh, I don't say counselor because I'm not a therapist, but I was a trauma specialist, maybe was the word, where if someone was okay. sexually assaulted, they would come to the Women's Center and they would kind of be funneled to me. And then I would help them with resources and get them where they needed to be to be treated. 
Um, and doing that for three years was a very clear path of, I need to understand what makes people unequal. I wanted to do a women's studies program, but at the time they were very, very few and far between to do any sort of gender studies graduate school um, program. So I found sociology and it had a gender component and I just sort of said, well, I'll just make it work. And I kind of the story of my education is um, square peg, round hole, where I sort of fit, but sort of don't. So I Hmm. went into a sociology degree and found a way to still kind of focus on the gender aspect that I wanted to focus on, um, but got this kind of bigger education in terms of like society, social structures, cultural structures, all of that stuff. Okay, so I have a couple of questions to piggyback off of that. The the first one is, so I understand being a woman, uh, a, a natural focus on inequality towards gender. How did race and sexuality come into play um, with that? And then also, personally, how did it affect you working at the women's shelter? Because I did a crisis line at the university when I was going to the University of Maryland um, and I worked for the school newspaper and there were so many things that were happening to women on campus that I had no idea about that I found out about the crisis line and I couldn't do it. It was hurting my heart too much. So how did you personally reconcile with the fact that you're helping women? I mean, you're helping them, but uh, the stories that they've gone through Mm -hmm. are traumatic and heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I have learned that I am excellent in a crisis. Like I am very, very, I'm a person that can stay calm. I'll cry my eyes out later. Like after the fact, mm-hmm. I will have a good solid cry. But in the moment I am, I probably, again, because of my parents doing what they did, my mom worked with, um, people in, or she worked in a retirement facility and my dad worked with abused and neglected kids. They're, they're both still alive now, but they're retired. Um, so I've always had this model for me of when, you know, when, when crisis is happening, when trauma is happening, we're going to stay calm. We're going to get through it. Um, I've also educated myself a lot to know that this person is in this moment right now. They're not going to stay there and it's, Mm -hmm. they're going to move past it. Um, and I think part of that also is, is knowing as much as I knew about, how trauma works, how people um, are going to be in the initial space versus how they are at the end, knowing that there's a light at the end of the tunnel for them. You know, you kind of got, into the, got to a place where you could look at someone and go, okay, this person is going to be fine. They just need a little something right now. Um, but it, I mean, obviously, yeah, it affects, it affects you, which is, I think, what motivated me to want to kind of, it's, it's one of the factors that motivated me to want to dedicate my life to understanding this more and eventually working with college students where I can share what I've, I've learned. Um, the, the question about race and, um, sexual orientation and kind of how all of that works. One of the things you learn when you start to study, uh, gender inequality is that it doesn't exist in a vacuum that all of that stuff is intertwined. You can't just look at one and not look at the rest of them. It's for the person who can, they're a better scholar than I am, I guess, because they are all connected. And if you don't grasp that and understand that and embrace all of it, you're not doing your job in terms of what it means to be a scholar in that field. Um, That said, uh, besides the fact, um, I was raised in, I I was a teenager in the 90s. And so things like uh, pop culture stuff really started to impact me, like things like the real world coming out. And um, if people aren't familiar, there was a man in the real world San Francisco called, uh, called Pedro Zamora. And he was one of the first people on television to have HIV and AIDS, and he died basically while the season was being aired. Um, and that was massive for me to be able to see that. You know, um, when Matthew Shepard was killed in '98, he was a young gay man in in Laramie, Wyoming. Um, that was huge for me to see things like that playing out. And you know, we say representation matters, and we say that you need to see things in order to understand them. But those two examples were kind of our first real demonstration of the power that pop culture can have on somebody's um, development and psyche, because it clearly affected mine, because I still think about it, you know, 30 some years later. Um, Mm -hmm. They're all intertwined. You can't have one without the other. Yeah, the intersection between race, gender and sexuality. uh, You know, I've interviewed a lot of different people. And and it's funny, you know, uh, you say inequality for gender women, 
right? But also, if you're a black woman, there's also an mm-hmm. added inequality of being black. Uh, if you're a Latino woman or a Latino man or a gay man or a gay black man or a gay black woman, or there's intersections all over the place. It's interesting that we talk about pop culture and media portrayals and uh, learning about different things. For those Gen Zers out there, I know you don't know too much about HIV and AIDS, but us 80s babies and 90s teenagers, it was a really, really big deal and big thing. When people got HIV, they got AIDS right away and they died. Easy mm-hmm. E, uh, Pedro, uh, all these things happened. And it enlightened us. I also feel like, and I'm sure we'll get into this later, how media portrayals uh, have negative impacts still to this day. So uh, in the 80s, it was not uncommon for criminals on television shows in that nature to be black. I was Mm -hmm. watching the second uh, season of Jack Reacher and I enjoyed the show yesterday. And the the criminals, there was a carjacker, he was black. And mm-hmm. I was like, wait a minute, they're in this little town in Arkansas. If there was going to be a, a carjacker in this little town in Arkansas, they would probably be, be would be white and it would probably be a meth addict. Why is this character black? Uh, why is the evil villain somebody foreign? Uh, these character portrayals are still being portrayed. I'm sure we'll get into that with pop culture because uh, it's kind of what you focus on. But we want to talk about good stuff, and especially your book. So you've written a book about Beyonce as a motivational queen. How did that all come about? Um, okay, I can't take 100% credit because I it's an edited collection, so there's lots of contributors to it. My husband gets annoyed when I say that because he's like, yes, but you put it together and you did. I understand that. Right. But it, Don't discredit yourself. That, yeah, that, yeah. But it was a community. A part of the book. It was a community effort, and it's going to get in, it's going to go into another edition um, that'll come out, I think, in about a year. Um, I am an adult woman of a certain age, and I love Beyonce. And if you don't, I don't quite know how to talk to folks who don't <laughs> at least appreciate what we have. Like what? Like this is the Aretha. This is the you know what I mean. Like this is the it's it. She's it. Um, so, you know, it started with that. Um, my first book was based off of my dissertation and I looked at women who are fans of Tori Amos and have used her music to heal after they've experienced some sort of trauma. And as I was researching that, um, I started to realize that there's not just a hole in literature that looks at fans of women in music. It's not just a hole. It's like a, it's like a divot. It's like a, like just like a bomb shelter size space where there is nothing. There's just no nothing out there that really looks at women who are fans of other women performers or why people enjoy female performers. Um, and it blew my mind that no one had looked at Beyonce yet because, I mean, we're not just talking about Beyonce as she is now. Beyonce has been around since what, like 95-ish? I mean, she ninety six, uh, ninety ninety, yeah, ninety four, ninety five. The the original, the original Destiny's Child. Yeah, the first four yeah, members, exactly. I think it was around that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we're talking, we're talking thirty years of being. You know, I think she was sixteen or something. I mean, it just mm-hmm. in Star Search was was a thing when she was around. So yeah, it true. it just absolutely blew my mind that no one has thought we need to study what this person and and bring in percept. Uh, bring in something that talks about the work she's done. Um, mm. And so when I, I put that, when I put the book together, that was kind of the motivation behind it. And then I just got really lucky. There was, there's so many wonderful scholars who contributed to it and who know way more than I do. My whole purpose whenever I put a book together is I know very, very little. And there are lots of people who know way more than I do. And I want to talk to those people. Like I want that perspective on this situation um, because you know, to think that you know everything is insane, first of all. But I, I wanted to bring in folks that had ideas about her work that maybe I didn't and who knew things that I mm-hmm. didn't. Um, and I also knew a few folks uh, that had really impressive takes on Beyonce's work. And I thought they that should be out into the world. And I don't say that in terms of like, I was the person that that brought this, you know, book forward. 
um, I say that in the sense of it was insane to me that nobody else had done this and that nobody else had thought that this was something that needed to be out there. My sister often brings up one time um, I was listing my favorite actors and I go, you know, Denzel, I go, uh, you know, Marlon Brando, I go Al Pacino and I list like seven different people. And she's like, so no women. And this is part of my evolution. This is when I was younger. This is part of my evolution. But I still have this problem where the Lady King came out. A couple, a couple of years ago. Looks mm-hmm. like a great movie. It looks like Black Wonder Woman. Why have I not seen this movie yet? There's still work for me to be done. So when you talk about that divot uh, of female representation and, and spotlighting it, I have to admit that I'm one of these people who are criminal of this, and I don't know what it is about me. So in your research, uh, how is her influence uh, so important? to society? Oh, God. Um, I know that was a loaded question. No, (laughs) it's a lot. Um, It's not just that she, we can see pop stars come and go who do a lot, right? Like Mm -hmm. who make an impact, who put out great music, stuff you can, you know, listen to at the gym, um, stuff that, that is just fun to listen to, but may not necessarily be saying something with it. And Mm. that doesn't seem to be the case with her. And I think that's why people connect to her. I think it's why people connect to people like Taylor Swift. Um, There is, there's been an intention with, with the music that she's put out, even from the beginning. I think it started to be really heavy in the empowerment zone when she first, Mm -hmm. when they first, when Destiny's Child first came out. Um, And then when you start to realize like a song like Survivor was a definite, uh, um, call out of the folks who said, you're not going to make it now that you're down to a, th- a trio of three. This this thing that you've done where you've discounted these other two people is, is, is when they broke off and had three and Destiny's Child instead of five um, or four. Um, when you start to realize there is an intention to her songwriting. I mean, you look at an album like Renaissance and Lemonade and you can see there is a point to what she's doing and it is resonating with people. One of her most underrated songs in my mind, if I may, <laughs> if I may, go, go for it, is a song she did with Drake called Mine. Um, and it okay. was on Beyonce. Somebody, some people call it the visual album, but it was on Beyonce, just Beyonce the, with the purple letters. Um, that song chronicles marriage. Like, I don't think I've heard a person put on an album in a very, very long time. I mean, that was, oh, she understands what it's like to be married to somebody for, for quite some time and what happens when that, when you're with someone like that. Um, that's what's where I think people get drawn to her. I think that they see mm-hmm. the intention and they see she's doing the research. She's doing the homework. Um, she knows what she's talking about when she puts out the uh, visual stuff that it came with Lemonade. Like that was very intentional. If you go down the rabbit hole of all of the Easter eggs in that hour something long film, it's crazy how many things she thought through to put in there to represent different aspects of culture. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Um, fandom and 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 people like Beyonce and Taylor Swift and things of that nature. Um, how do fan communities contribute or challenge societal norms when regarding race and gender and identity? So fandoms have always been on the outlier of, um, Mm. of a society. Fandoms have always been seen historically. They were seen as like the odd ducks of our group, like the Trekkies and the people who just, you know, could not get enough, um, of their, their nerd culture or whatever. Um, they've mm-hmm. always kind of been the people on the periphery. And for a long time, they were groups of people that, you know, you could kind of look down upon or say like, Ugh, these are just insane people that have connected themselves to whatever. Um, but the reality of fandom has been that those people on the outside are looking at the world in a way that's different than what the rest of us can see. And that part is dangerous to some folks, that when you have groups of people Mm. who can bring a new perspective to a society or to a culture, that's scary for some people. So when, are you asking me in terms of like, 
gender specifically or like in fandom in general? Gender, race, and sexuality. So when we talk about Beyonce, I'm a Beyonce fan. Uh, and anytime she comes out with an album, I'm listening to it. I liked her last album because it brought a lot of house music a- into <laughs> it. So Beyonce fans cross all of these different intersections with gender, race, and sexuality. She brings people together, unifying under one thing, which I think is important in society when people that are different can find commonality. I think that's how we bring close people closer together. So that's by and large what I'm asking is like, how does this fandom affect uh, society? How does being a fan of Beyonce help, help, or hinder society because there are situations where fandom can cause uh, division. Case in point, some of our politicians, there are people who are actually fans <laughs> of politicians that create division. But spe- speaking specifically to just pop culture and those people participating in pop culture, how does this fandom bring people together and affect you know, the different intersections of gender, race, and sexuality? Okay, I am so glad you you, you brought this up. Um, so first of all, the the notion of fandom is just to find a group of folks that are like minded and you can feel connected to, and most people need that, like that mm-hmm. good, bad, indifferent. Most people want to know other people feel the same way they do about something or are as passionate about them as passionate as something about something as they are, um, and that explains how we end up with with both ends of the spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when we're looking at People like Beyonce, what I think is interesting about her, last summer, I don't know if you saw um, the the headlines that Beyonce, Barbie, and Taylor Swift basically drove the economy all summer with the tours Beyonce was doing, the tour Taylor Swift was doing, and the film Barbie, that that was the driving force for our economic status for the entire yeah, summer with those three things. And didn't each enterprise bring about a billion dollar a piece? It's, yes, it's nuts. Um and yeah. and the reason for that is, um, on my podcast, I had a, a woman on um, an episode that I'm working on who's an economist, and we were talking about why were people so attached to that trio of Barbie, Beyonce, and Taylor Swift. And one of the reasons we came up with, and one of the reasons she thinks, is because a year ago when we had um, Roe versus Wade be overturned, there was this feeling amongst a lot of, especially women um, and people who felt the pressure of that of what are we going to do and where are we going to put this energy of, I don't feel like um, I, I'm being heard. I don't, I feel like my rights have been challenged. And one of the places people tend to put that is in our pop culture. So mm-hmm. we took, a lot of people took that feeling of frustration and saw these artists in this film that kind of challenge what that stood for um, in some ways and and dug in deep and said, I'm going to feel like a part of something again. And I feel like these group, these things are are helping me feel that way. What's interesting about Beyonce specifically is that fans tend to get real weird about women who are fans of other women. So as a culture, we tend to be totally fine with girls and women going to like a Harry Styles show, screaming their heads off, singing along, losing their mind. That's fine. A Taylor Swift show, girls and women go sing along, get teary-eyed, scream, whatever. They're hysterical or they are um, unable to control their emotions. Beyonce seems to be great at balancing both ends of that spectrum where you can go to a Beyonce show, feel all the feelings, and most people are going to be like, yeah, I get it. That's Beyonce. I get it. Um, it doesn't bring the dual nature that that you see, you tend to see with groups of um fans based off of whatever sex the performer is in front of them. So what is it about Beyonce that makes, not, I'm trying to choose my words carefully, not okay, but makes it so that it's okay for fans to react that way with Beyonce, but not to Taylor Swift. I'm, I'm a little confused because they're both hugely popular that are driving economies wherever they go, wherever they perform. Uh, the fandom, the Swifties, and uh, what is Beyonce's group The called? Beehive. The Beehive. The Beehive. Yeah, the Beehive. I don't know how I forgot that. Uh, you know, they drive this. The, the fandom is is equal on both sides. So why is it 
uh, why is it that women and men are looked mm-hmm. at differently going to a Beyonce concert than a Taylor Swift concert? I think it's a good question. I don't know. I think it's worth looking into more. What do you think? Oh, okay. Um, hmm. I, hmm. I think race has a little something to do with it. And this is what I mean mm-hmm. by that. Black people tend to support one another just because there's a communal aspect, especially black Americans, because we've been separated and segregated all of our lives. I I have a a white friend that I was working out with a couple of years ago at a park and we were leaving the park and there was a black couple coming to pass us. And I gave him the head nod. It's a universal thing that most black people of a certain age, I don't know about this younger generation do. We acknowledge each other when we see each other because we're typically in spaces where majority of the time we're the minorities. Um, And he said, what are you doing? I said that. And I explained it to him. That's that's what we do. He's like, I don't do that to people. And I said, I know, because typically you're not the minority. So we tend to support one another. I also know, and I don't know if this is true, but generally speaking, some of the worst people towards women are other women. Mm-hmm. So, um, and just Beyonce just doesn't have that. And Taylor doesn't have that. But the the men, the men, I I would imagine seeing black men at a Beyonce concert is par for the course, but seeing black men at a Taylor Swift or white men at a Beyonce concert wouldn't you wouldn't normally see that. Uh, so I'm gonna say that yeah, race probably has something to do with it. That plus she's attached to Jay-Z, right? So men are like, yeah, I have to take my significant other to go see the Beyonce concert, but I know she'll do some songs with Jay-Z. And then they realize, well, oh, I actually like Beyonce songs that don't have anything to do with Jay-Z. Whereas I don't know if Taylor has collaborations like that. I don't know. That was a long-winded answer to your question, but I think, you know, just off the top of my head that that has something to do with it. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, what you're demonstrating is that these things have layers, right? Like you can't explain Mm -hmm. the situation of why someone goes to one show versus another, why someone fits in one fandom versus another. They, they have layers to them. Um, And I think you're right. And I, I think that one of the appeals of her, I mean, there's like a thousand appeals to her, but um, one of the appeals to her is that it's, it's a safe space and it's a place where Mm. you can go and express whatever you got to express in the, I I forget how long her show is like three hours or whatever, but you're going to feel safe there. And Mm -hmm. um, I think for the the same thing applies to a Taylor Swift show. It's a safe space where you can go and be the odd duck that you are and it's fine. Um, And that for a lot of people is the solace of, of a fandom. And it's not necessarily just about seeing the performance on stage. I mean, um, I know for these shows, the show starts at what, like seven or something, and people will show up the second that that stadium opens just because they want to have community before it starts. And just because they want to hang out with each other and, you know, meet strangers and, and do all of that stuff just to have a place to gather and congregate. That's part of the appeal of performers of Beyonce's caliber. She allows people to have that space. Hey there, podcast listeners. It's Bruce Anthony here, and welcome to another episode of Unsolicited Perspectives. Today, I want to talk to you about something that's been on my mind lately, the importance of staying hydrated and taking care of ourselves. Whether it's prioritizing our health and wellness, or gearing up for festival seasons, or just gearing up for whatever season or time of year, there's one brand that's been my go-to for all things hydration. Liquid IV. Speaking of health and wellness, let's dive into how Liquid IV can fuel your well-being. Imagine starting your day off right, feeling refreshed and energized. Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier is the missing piece in your daily routine. With just one stick, you get five essential vitamins and two times faster hydration than water alone. It's perfect for those early mornings, pre-workout boosts, moments when you're just feeling run down, or even after a late night or long flights. I absolutely love how convenient Liquid IV is. The packaging makes it easy to bring with me wherever I go. And let me tell you, it's become vital daily part of my routine. The flavors, <laughs> let me tell you something, they're incredible. From refreshing sea berry and strawberry lemonade to classics like lemon lime and watermelon, there's a flavor for every preference. It's like a burst of hydration with a hint 
of deliciousness. Picture this, one stick of liquid IV mixed in 16 ounces of water, hydrating you two times faster and more efficient than water alone. And with 12 mouth-watering flavors, you'll never get bored with your hydration routine. Plus, Liquid IV is packed with five essential vitamins, B3, B5, B6, B12, and of course, vitamin C. It's also made with premium ingredients, non-GMO, free of gluten, dairy, and soy. This is hydration at its finest. But it doesn't stop there. Liquid IV believes that access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. That's why they partner with leading organizations finding innovative solutions to help communities protect both their water and their futures. It's incredible to know that Liquid IV has already donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. They truly walk the talk. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code unsolicited at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code unsolicited at liquidiv.com. Remember folks, taking care of ourselves should always be a priority. So why wait? Head over to liquidiv.com, pick your favorite flavors and experience hydration like never before. Stay refreshed, stay hydrated, and keep rocking those unsolicited perspectives. So we've talked about the Beehive, we talked about the uh, Swifties, but now I want to talk about you. Um, with your appearances in your different media outlets, whether it be Glamour Magazine, The Washington Post, NBC News, uh, and you're discussing um, pop culture and gender, sexuality, and race. Um, have, can you share, is there, has there been anything that's that's been impactful or a surprising moment in any of these interviews, uh, research that you've done that have shaped your perspective on intersection of media and culture? So there's a person that I met through um, NBC News who interviewed me quite a few times, and her name is Elizabeth Chuck, and she's a reporter for NBC News. Um, and the first time she contacted me, I, I don't remember what the story was, um, but we kind of sort of talked a little bit and, and became, I don't want to say friends, but, you know, light acquaintances. And mm -hmm. I learned a lot about um, the process journalists go through before they put anything out into the world just from talking to her and um, hearing her have conversations about how open she has to be to when she's made mistakes and how she has to course correct if she reports something that isn't um, not necessarily untruthful, but maybe the fact was not as good as, as she thought it could be. Um, mm -hmm. That has been a really great learning experience for me, just in terms of interviews, um, doing interviews and learning about different things. I did want to share, I, I had a, um, kind of like a, I've had two moments that were just lightning bolts of, oh, don't forget you're, you're still talking to the media about the media. Like <laughs> that this mm, is a, this mm -hmm. is a meta situation. One was right. a person contact. This was years ago. This was when Beyonce first came out um, and wanted to talk to me about the, the book. And I should have, could have, would have, I should have looked at who they were a little more closely and they said they were writing for a news website in France. This isn't NPR France um, at all. Um, this is, I'm not even going to say which one it was. Um, but they were writing for a news outlet in France, and they wanted to write about um, Beyonce in the book. And so I said, sure, of course. And, and I did the interview, and everything was fine. Nothing seemed odd. And then I never heard from them. I never heard from them. I never heard from them. And I kind of forgot. And then, I don't know, a couple of months later, I thought, I wonder if anything ever came of that. Because it is fairly common sometimes where folks will interview you and then either they'll get scooped or somebody else will have already written about it or they had something else happen. Um, and so I Googled it and I didn't realize it was a person's kind of personal blog that hmm. was written and it was written all in French. And when Google Translate translated it, it was very negative toward... Uh, yeah, toward Beyonce, toward her as a performer, not necessarily anything about my book, which was kind of annoying. Like you just took quotes from me, but didn't mention the work I've done. 
and and it was it was a solid reminder that you're still a person talking about the media to the media and as most 99% of the time it's great experiences but you still got to do your homework and you still got to know who you're talking to and what they may be coming in with what kind of agenda they may be coming in with um which is a meta moment right <laughs> to think about it like yeah that. yeah so with your podcast most popular I'm going to transition a little bit because you bring up something that's interesting. I know that I will have guest requests to come on the show and I have to do a deep dive. Mm -hmm. I have to find out every, but I, I also went to school and my first major was journalism. So I, there's still some principles that I, I hold on to, but every now and then I've interviewed some people. And even though I've done a deep dive, I was like, Oh, I didn't know that this was your agenda when you came on to the show. Uh, so has that happened on your own podcast? Uh, most popular, by the way, check that out wherever you get your audio podcast. Um, I have been very lucky to not have that specific thing happen, mm -hmm. but I will say this. I have had folks who um, I have loved what they've written. I have loved mm -hmm. what they've put out into the world. I could not wait to talk to them. And then I get them and their emails are great and everything's great. And I know you know where I'm going with this. And then they get on and you're just like, could you give me more than two sentences of an answer yes. to something? <laughs> yes. Like you have written yes. a 400, I read your 400 page book on this topic. I So then, you know, you try and do things like I, I always make sure I have pull quotes from the book that I can say, okay, you wrote this. What did you mean? Can you expand mm -hmm. like that kind of stuff? Um, but that that's what's happened to me more consistently is, um, you know, academics were great, but we're not all used to a medium where we have to talk about ourselves. I am, you know, not great at it either. And I do it more regularly than most folks. So I, I get the reticence, but at the same time, I've had that happen a lot where you're you're just like, you're so loquacious in other areas. And then now, now you decide, I don't want to say anything. This mm -hmm. moment with a microphone in front of you? Yeah, it happens. That happens a lot. And there's just dead space and you're feeling it and you're like, I need you to say something right now. <laughs> so pop culture and podcasts, podcasts are kind of like pop culture now. Like we're mm -hmm. both in this space. How does gender, sexuality, and uh, race and podcasting uh, have you done any research or thought any about anybody, anybody can get some software, turn, turn on the camera, microphone, and start talking. What a lot of people don't realize is that, especially if you're doing a show by yourself and it's 50 minutes an hour to, to talk about something for 50 minutes in an hour to keep it engaging is a lot more difficult than, than people realize. It's not as easy as turning on the mic and going. But a lot of people have voices, some good. Some bad, <laughs> but people have voices. How do you think pop culture has affected podcasting? Well, Mr. Bruce, there are several answers to this. Um, <laughs> number one, luckily enough, I just this sounds so. This is where I say we're, I'm not. I'm not great at, at at bragging about myself. I just guest edited a series of essays for a journal called Radio Journal on this very topic of how we incorporate social inequality into podcasting. And there's two layers to it, right? So the first one is that um, podcasts are an amazing opportunity for people who don't normally have a voice to have a voice. And like mm -hmm. you said, it's so easy. I mean, I've got a, a blue Yeti mic that I paid a couple hundred dollars for. You don't even need this. You just need some you don't even need the earbud situation. Like my computer no. will record mm -hmm. nothing, you know? Your phone, so, smartphones will do it now. Exactly. You can yeah. you can use anything to record your voice and put it out into the world. And that is amazing that anyone with a you know, basic level of how to create a little tiny logo for yourself and a smartphone, there you go, recording done. Um, that's fantastic. Anybody can put that out. The other layer of it is that when you start to break down, I don't know if you want to call it like the top 10 on iTunes or, you know, the the, the podcasts that are the most popular, which is the name of my podcast. Um, there is a definite, uh, there is a definite theme happening of 
usually white men in the top groups, usually uh, groups of people talking about stuff that are already pretty famous. I think like Smartless is a good example of that or um, Dex Shepard's podcast. Um, Those are the ones that tend to bubble up to the tippy top and people know the most about. So you have two layers to this. You have this amazing opportunity for people to put their voice out there and get heard. And then you also have the corporate structure that has sort of taken over um, podcasting mm-hmm. and has made it much more challenging for folks to, pos- to I don't want to say possibly, to pop through that, that, that bubble yeah. and get their mm-hmm. stuff out where people can hear it. Um, and you have to go looking for it, right? Like you have to kind of know what you're looking for. Um, I think in the last, there's a scholar who I really, really love, um, whose name is Bruce Druschel, and he's at, uh, oh gosh, I forget where, I'll, I'll email it to you later. Um, but his name is Bruce Druschel, and he uh, has been looking at audio content for his entire career, and he can talk about it in terms of the days of the 1950s radio all the way until right now with podcasting. And one of the things he talks about is that, um, and he does it through the lens of of queer uh, life experience. So he, one of the things he'll talk about is that there's this amazing opportunity, especially for queer voices to be heard on podcasts. And there's also this, this um, pushback of how are we going to get these voices out when in the last probably five years, podcasting has become a massive money-making opportunity for folks. And the mm-hmm. pandemic even made it even worse because people were home and they needed something to do. And podcasts just blew up in the last four years. So I, I don't think there's going to be a bubble on podcasts because if you look at the numbers, most podcasts don't make it past, I think they said 10 episodes. Yeah. Because to be mm-hmm. consistent, right, to keep coming up with content, uh, some people say you have to find a, a, a niche, a niche. And uh, we we here at Unsolicited Perspectives kind of have that, but we kind of go all over the place. I, I do things that drive interest. And we're rapidly coming up on our 100th episode. And by this time next year, we'll have 200 episodes. Mm-hmm. Can't stop, won't stop. Even though I keep quoting Puffy, I can't do that anymore. But <laughs> what what made you decide I wanted to start? A podcast. I want to do my own podcast. Okay. There's a professional answer and a personal answer. So I'm going to give you the professional one first, like the fancy okay. answer. This is my fancy answer. My fancy answer is I um, am a professor at an institution that is um, a state college and it is extremely diverse in terms of my student population. So I am very aware that I am a white middle-aged lady. And that my experiences are, I mean, there's always overlap, but my students' experiences are very different than mine. So I wanted to figure out a way that I could bring them, bring to them um, folks who have research, lived experience, or who are an expert in some field that is relatable to them. So I started mm-hmm. Most Popular with the idea that I would just talk to five or six scholars that I knew who studied stuff that was interesting and that would grab my students' attention. Like my friend, um, Dr. Uh, Kwame Harrison, Anthony Kwame Harrison, is at Virginia Tech, and he looks at the anthropology of hip-hop. So he will look at like mixtapes from the 80s and how that is an archaeological artifact that we need to you know, have some sort of comprehension on. But he also is an artist, and he raps. So I thought, okay, it would be cool. I use him as an example, but I thought it would be cool to bring him on, have him do some freestyle, have him talk about how one becomes an anthropologist who looks at mixtapes um, and the history of hip hop and, uh, and just sort of take it from there. That was the, that's the professional answer. The personal mm-hmm. answer is I am a really curious person and mm-hmm. I love talking to other like this right now is killing me that I can't ask you 20 questions about your life. <laughs> like <laughs> I get it. I get it. I have like I I have so many questions about people's lives all the time. Mm-hmm. And as a naturally introverted person sometimes that's shocking to folks, but I really like learning about other people's lives and experiences. That is important to me. And if I can exp- if I can share that side of myself with my students and say, you know, I'm on this journey with you too. I'm like, yes, I'm picking the folks that we, that are on the podcast, but um, I really am 
genuinely curious about these people that we're talking to. And I've also let them drive the bus a little bit. Every semester I ask them, like, who, what, what would you, what topics would you like to cover? What kinds of things do you wish you would know more about? And then I try and find people that, that can talk about those things. But I am genuinely just a person who likes to hear other people's stories and how they got to the point they're at in their life. And if I can tie what? in pop culture with that, I'm, I'm done. Like that, that's, that's, that's the best. Yeah. That's the best for me. I think a lot of people don't get that about podcasting. You know, when people when people have podcasts that fail or listeners out there, uh, when you're a host or you have your own podcast and you're interviewing people, you're doing it because you genuinely have an interest in people. Uh, the way they think, the way they were raised, you learn something from everybody because by talking to people, you get new insight into society and life. Mm -hmm. So yes, that's so very, very important. And also that's really dope that as an educator, um, you're expressing to your students, yes, I'm teaching, but I'm also learning as well. That I wish I had professors that express that because I would, I would be more invested in, or oh, this is a, we're all in this together. Here is somebody, obviously, who's more knowledgeable uh, and it's teaching me something. But to also say, hey, look, I don't know everything. I'm still learning as well. Let's take this journey together. I think a lot of people in uh, the teaching industry, because uh, I did go to school to be a teacher, uh, don't realize that, that teaching is also continuously learning and bringing that in uh, helps enrich the experience when you're working with students. So that's really, really dope that you do that. And it's really, really dope that you like talking to people. I think that's important. But then Thank again, you. that also explains how you're a professor in sociology. Yeah. Can I can I say something just along with what you just you just of course articulated? Um I appreciate that a lot because um I think that one of the places you can get stuck in higher ed is assuming that you have now been anointed expert, right? Like you get this mm -hmm. title of expert and you're done and you don't have to do anything else because now you're an expert. And the thing that I mm -hmm. think most people who are truly experts in their field know is that you don't know anything. Like you, you have this tiny, tiny gap of knowledge or this tiny, tiny place where you have a ton of knowledge, but there are people who know more than you or who have a different perspective than you or who can bring something to the table you can't. And if you cut yourself off from that, it's 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 not benefiting anybody. Um, and in terms of students, I mean, it, if if you came to a class for, to one of my classes, um, first of all, the the personality is the same, but um, it's about having conversation and and learning from each other as opposed to me standing up, you know, proclaiming all of my brilliantness to a classroom. It's more about we're all here to learn. Let's see what we all can bring to the table. And that's the way it should be. So as a professor, as an author, as a podcaster, and in, and in that same vein of what we were talking about, what have you faced, what challenges have you faced communicating these sociological concepts uh, to the broader audience? So taking out your students, because obviously we can't talk about the students right now, but when you're doing your podcast, when you're writing and you're getting feedback, what are some of the challenges that you get when you're just saying, hey, why don't you look at this? Because it, as you said, there are people that uh, have that hubris where I, I've got everything. I know everything that I need to know. I don't need to know anything else. I don't want to hear what you have to say. Mm -hmm. So what challenges have you faced just getting your thoughts, your facts, your information out there? I'm not going to be super specific. Um, I, I want to keep it a little more general. But yeah, don't I throw anybody under the bus. <laughs> <laughs> I have I have had the experience of um, tr trying to publish something, have it reviewed by some people who clearly had no idea what I was trying to do, and um, either have it rejected or have been asked to make changes to things that would totally change the structure of what I was looking at. Um, one that I can say that's kind of vague, it's not super specific because I don't think anybody would ever be listening who knew what this was. But um, years ago, one of the very first things I had published was uh, a study, believe it or not, um, 10 years ago, very few research journals that looked at research methods 
um, understood how to do interviews for participants in a study over the phone. Like that was considered just mind blowing that you would call someone and do an interview as opposed to sit down face to face. I know. I see the look on your face. It was, it just wasn't being done. There wasn't anything published on it. So I was like, well, that's an easy one. I did interviews over the phone. I can publish this. So I, I submitted what I did and um, the journal was great that I was working with, but there was one reviewer who very clearly thought that since I had studied people, remember my dissertation was on women who had experienced trauma, that since mm-hmm. I had studied trauma, that I should just never publish anything on it because I'm not a um, psychologist, psychiatrist, or a trauma specialist. And that anything I did that had anything to do with trauma should be moot and that the re- journal should reject it immediately. And they didn't, obviously. Um, but that, you know, that's the kind of thing that you get where there are people that are very stuck in their own lane of how things should be. And they're not quite grasping that the whole point of this world we exist in is to talk about how things can be, if, if mm. I could give the dichotomy for it. So how do you deal with that personally? <laughs> <laughs> You email friends that you know are like-minded and you scream a lot. You start there mm-hmm. and you text um, and you just, you know, you get it all out in a safe place. And then you compose your very professional worded message that you think will solve the problem and you send it to a few folks that can re- proofread it for you. I mean, honestly, this is, it, it's the extra step that you, anybody that that studies inequality, um, I mean, honestly, anyone who has ever felt like they were an other in a society will know that you usually have to take 12 steps to get to the place that most people only have to take one step to get to. So you Mm -hmm. do that stuff and you find a way around it. And if it's really not working, then you just say, okay, and you you move on to something else. Um, But, you know, it's it's the find a way around the situation first, see if there's a back door, see if there's, you know another way to to deal with it that's not great advice but <laughs> <laughs> well everybody deals with different things differently um you know when people say that i can't do something or i i can't say something or i can't do anything i'm always my mentality has been since i was a kid okay we're gonna do it anyway and show yeah. you uh but that's not always the right way to, to put your head down and forge ahead like a bowl so sometimes things deserve power. Sometimes things deserve finesse. Each situation is different. Um, Looking ahead, where do you see the future of media representation heading in terms of addressing and challenging inequalities? And what do you think the role of academics play in that, especially now that we're seeing academics such as yourself being content creators? I think that Social media and podcasting are giving really great opportunities for experiences and stories and information to get out there that may not necessarily have had that platform before. Here's an example. Um, My students this semester uh, were exposed for the first time, a lot of them, to um, the the, um, missing and murdered Indigenous women that is happening around the United States. And so when I brought this up for the first time, um, somebody raised her hand and said, oh, that is what, I forget the account, but that is what so-and-so on TikTok talks a lot about. And then about four other people went, oh, I follow that guy. That's what he's talking about. And and it just sort of snowballed from there where me showing a story from NBC News about something wasn't clicking, but TikTok was the thing that made them go, oh, I've watched a content creator talk about this exact thing. I just didn't realize that's what was going on. And then that led to um, what I normally do with them is I have them, you know, give a list of folks that they follow that that do these types of things. Um, I think if you're ignoring social media and podcasting and all of this content creation stuff, um, you're not grasping the potential that it has to get information in people's lives and experiences out into the world. Because there's so many folks that are doing just an amazing job with making content that... Um, I don't know if they're setting out to change your mind or change your experience, but you know, if if you, for example, have an issue with someone because they are 
LGBTQ. Um, there's so many content creators out there who are just placing that stuff out there of this is me living my life with my partner or my wife or my husband or whatever. And people tend to follow them, not really understanding um, that they're also participating in a bit of a movement now. So there's one woman that I love a lot. Um, her name is Miss Chang on Instagram, and she's a teacher. I think she said fourth grade, maybe mm-hmm. second grade. Um, and she and her wife are a um, biracial couple with two kids, and they're just living their life. And it is joy to watch them. I mean, they are just a joyful family. That type of stuff is where I think the future of this should be heading. We should be thinking about how media, in terms of content, is um, getting across the stuff that we were hoping, you know, 20 years ago, that, or probably even more than that, 30 years ago, that the internet would do. Um, I really emphasize with my students, think about who you follow when you look at social media, especially Um, go through your list. And if it's not something that makes you feel better about yourself or makes you feel good, and if it's not somebody that you're learning from or has a different perspective than you, then maybe think about who, I mean, we all have our guilty pleasure followers, like there's no doubt there. But if you're the overwhelming thing you see are people doing, you know, um, body influencing where they're trying to tell you if you eat um, carrot stew for the next month, you will lose 60 pounds and look like me. Like if that's the majority of the stuff you're seeing, that's what's affecting you. Right. So that stuff, those things are important. That representation really does matter. And ignoring that this is where people are getting the majority of their information from is not going to help us as we move forward. I So I want to get your opinion on this. This is something that I've been thinking about a lot because I'm, when I talk to different people, this is things that I get from other people, specifically when it comes to social media, not podcasting, but social media. These sound bites, minute, two minute, three minutes, where if you're paying attention, you can learn something. But what they are is a spark of curiosity about something. And I feel like a lot of people will will get that spark, but they won't research and they won't expand upon and get to learn more about it. And there's so many times that f- friends of mine will will send me a TikTok or send me an Instagram knowing that I'm a history major, I'm a historian, right? And they will send me something saying, did you hear about this? This is crazy. And I'm like, this isn't the whole story. This is part of the story. Here's more information. You need to do research. This soundbite can't give you all of your information. Uh, I think social media is fantastic because I've learned things about American history that I didn't know about, but it's a spark. It mm-hmm. gives me a little bit and I'm like, oh, let me Google search this. And then I go into a deep dive. Is that part of the journalism, the historian that I do research? Okay, maybe. And not everybody does that. But I think an emphasis needs to be put on these content creators to say, hey, look, don't just take my word for it. Go do the research here and here and here. Um, and that's, I see great benefits from social media. I also see detrimental situations happening from social media. So I just, what do you think is the responsibility for content creators, specifically on social media, uh, when they're giving, when I learned about Melungeons, right? I I think it's not a derogatory term. People have told me it is, isn't, but it's a group of uh, basically interraced people, uh, former slaves and white people, because interracial marriages weren't really uh, allowed that went up to the mountain, to, went out to the mountains and created this whole community. And a lot of people that you see in Appalachia mountains all the way going into West Virginia it, are descendants of these people, had no idea. So I did a research and, and that was a poor description of it. Uh, but I did a research and I was like, wow, I never knew about this. So what, what do you think is the content creator's responsibility when they're creating I, content? I love this question so much. You are speaking my language on so many different levels. Um, media literacy is is what we're talking about. So we're talking about understanding that this media is part of our lives. It's not going anywhere, right? Like there's no way we're going to go without the internet at this point. It's not going to happen. What are we doing to teach people what is real and what isn't, right? Um, I think content creators, um, there was something great that happened when that hashtag ad or hashtag advertisement came out where, you know, you had to say that this was an ad for something. I think that if you're placing something on the internet that is in your mind a fact or something that happened or whatever, 
adding a link, putting on there if you want to know more, here's where you go, um, putting something in your in your description or in your um, bio link, all of that stuff can take somebody to the next step. Like, you know, you can't force them to click on it and, and learn more. But citing your sources in a way that makes sense for whatever platform you're on is really beneficial. Rarely do I post a news story that I don't post the link to so that, you know, folks can have that information or um, a fact or whatever. There's a woman that I love on Instagram, um, Jessica Yellen. She used to be a White House reporter and she used to be a reporter at CNN. And she created her own news service through Instagram called News Not Noise. And she will make with every slide, she will make a link to whatever story she's sourcing this from or whatever information she's getting this from, whatever you know statistic or, or all of it. But every single thing has that link connected to it. And that is you know, that is the the difference between um, a fact that you just have decided is a fact, and so now it's a fact, and a fact that's actually a fact because, look, here's the source to back it up with a legitimate website or poll or whatever it is you're looking at. I was what I was just getting ready to say so many times people are sending me, did you read this article? And I look at the website and I'm like, wait a minute, did you do any research on this website? Mm-hmm. Well, no, I mean, I just read the article or they don't even read the article. They just read the headline. We're we're going off on a tangent here, but uh, I, I find this no, interesting. I, th- the, I think a lot I of think, people are just. Yeah. Media uh, literacy we, we, no is. No words needed to be said right there. We both looked at each other and was like, "Yeah, no, I know exactly what you're feeling right now. I know yeah, exactly media what you're literacy thinking. is the is the thing. Like it's it's the it's the new learning how to type. You know, it's it's something that needs to be baked in. And I don't think it's generational. I don't think that it's just one group. I don't think it's just Gen Z or millennials or boomers. Even though I will say, boomers. Good God. <laughs> like <laughs> everything that you see on social media is not the truth. Uh, my mom isn't a boomer and I'm not throwing her under the bus, but there's a lot of times she sends me stuff and I'm like, mom, come on. Like you're, you're really smart. Let's just, uh, let's just do a little bit more research here. Uh, Adrian, <laughs> was there, was there a final nugget or point that you wanted to give to my audience, uh, about the work that you do and the importance of pop culture and inequality? Uh, with regards to gender, race, and sexuality? Oh, God. Um, Just that I I think that maybe there's this misnomer that you can avoid pop culture and that it it doesn't affect you, that you can just toss it aside and have no connection to it. And here's the example I like to give when I teach. I have never seen an episode of any Kardashian show ever that's ever been on air except for a five-minute clip where Chloe had to take a drug test. And in the drug test room, they allowed her to wear like her sweatshirt, carry her purse, do all that stuff. And I was like, oh, that's sick. There's no, anybody who's ever had to take a tr- drug test in real life knows that they basically have you stripped down to nothing to walk into that room, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for an employer or whatever. I, I did it once to volunteer with kids. And it was literally like, you, you, you cannot go into this room with anything other than your bra. Like, that's what it was. Right. I can name all of them. I know I've other than that five minute clip. Um, I sometimes blank out on on. I don't know that there's all the grandkids' names or children's names. I can name all of them. Never seen that show. It makes its way into your life, and it does. it's not yeah. bad. Like it's not bad to have strong opinions about Beyonce. It's it's part of existing in this society. Many, many years ago when World War II was happening, one of the things women would do was draw lines up at the back of their legs because they couldn't afford pantyhose, right? But they still wanted the effect mm-hmm. of looking like they had pantyhose lines. So they would take a marker or an eyeliner and just draw that line up um, because that was part of the fashion of the time. But it's also a statement on where we were at as a country at that moment, right? Like pantyhose were not available. Why? Well, they were using it for supplies for the war. These things all have bigger impacts than we think they do. And um Ignoring that just basically means you're saying, well, I'm the exception to the rule. Society doesn't impact me. Culture doesn't impact me. And you don't have to care about all of it, but you do have to understand that it it does shape our lives and our experiences. And that that is, um, that's fine. It's actually great to participate in understanding how somebody like Beyonce makes people so happy that they will flock to shows to see her perform. 
Well said. Adrian, I want to thank you for coming on the show. This has been an enlightening conversation that I know my listeners are going to like listening and watching and learn. The most important thing is I always want my audience to learn something from each and every episode. So once again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. This was fun. I want to thank Dr. Adrian Trier Bennett for coming on the show and, and teaching us how uh, pop culture presents inequality uh, based on gender, uh, sexuality, and race. Like we we know these things to be true, but it's really cool to get details of how specifically pop culture is influencing our society as far as inequality is concerned. Uh, so I definitely learned a lot. Hope you guys learned a lot as well. Don't forget to check out uh, Dr. Adrian books, The Beyonce Effect and Gender and Pop Culture, a text reader. You can get that information down in the descriptions. I'm going to provide that for you and check out her podcast, Most Popular. Uh, Definitely going to give a listen to. I'm even going to appear on the show soon. uh, So that's going to be really cool. But uh, thank you again for listening. Thank you for watching it. And until next time, as always, I'll holla. That was a hell of a show. Thank you for rocking with us here on Unsolicited Perspectives with Bruce Anthony. Now, before you go, don't forget to follow, subscribe, like, comment, and share our podcast wherever you're listening or watching it to it. Pass it along to your friends. If you enjoy it, that means the people that you rock with will enjoy it also. So share the wealth, share the knowledge, share the noise. And for all those people that say, well, I don't have a YouTube. If you have a Gmail account, you have a YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can actually watch our video podcast but the real party is on our patreon page after hours uncensored and talking straight ish after hours uncensored is another show with my sister and once again the key word there is uncensored those are exclusively on our patreon page jump onto our website at unsolicitedperspective.com for all things us that's where you can get all of our audio video our blogs and even buy our merch and if you're really feeling genuine and want to help us out you can donate on our donations page donation go strictly to improving our software and hardware so we can keep giving you guys good content that you can clearly listen to and that you can clearly see. So any donation would be appreciated. Most importantly, I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for listening and watching and supporting us. And I'll catch you next time. Audi 5000. Peace.